You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, my name is Mark Blythe. I'm a professor of political economy at Brown University, and I have with me today Eric Lonergan, who is a hedge fund manager for M&G in London. And the first question you should be asking yourself is, what do these two have in common? And the answer is, we wrote a book called Angrynomics, which seems to be getting a fair bit of attention, which is nice. It's also a rather unusual book. We think it's one that will be of interest to this audience. But also, it's one that this audience can share with a whole bunch of other people who aren't finance specialists. It's, uh, we'd like to say it's unique in the sense that it has a discussion of things like dual interest rates and helicopter money, and yet you can still give it to your uncle who doesn't have a clue how finance works. And that was how we, that's the audience we had in mind when we wrote it. So without further ado, I'm going to do something quite strange now, which is I'm going to kind of interview my co-author, or rather I'm going to host myself. So I'm not sure how this is going to work. <laughs> Let's see how this works. Hello, Eric. How are you doing? It's nice to catch up. It's been a while. It has been a while, actually. So thank you very much, Real Vision, for giving us the opportunity to actually have a chinwag. So let me give everyone a little bit of background on another unusual aspect of the book, which is how it came about. And then I want to get into the frame, the anger frame, because that came through our discussion. So let me talk yep. to people about how that came about. So the way that she says switching into speaker mode rather than host mode, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened was Eric and I met at finance conferences. Prior to doing this project, I read a book called Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea. And in order to know that I wasn't talking nonsense, I wanted to meet Bond vigilantes. So I started going to where they hang out. And I met Eric and some of his friends and people like that. And very few of them were Bond vigilantes. They seemed to be quite sensible people who understood fixed income and, and that what they were doing to Greece was awful and so on and so forth. So we started doing things together and being on the same panels, all that sort of stuff. And people said to us, you guys seem to have a knack for basically cutting to the chase, making these very, very complex things essentially quite simple. You should try and write a book. So we never had the time to write a book, but what we did was we swapped reading lists. And we knew the areas we wanted to talk about. So I said, Eric, what do you want to talk about? So I want to talk about technology and labor markets. What else do you want to talk about? I want to talk about dispersal of profits amongst firms, the whole superstar firm stuff. Okay, great. What else do you want to talk about? I want to talk about aging, how that affects us in the economy. What else do you want to talk about? Big financial crashes. How do they fit into these more micro-level stories? Then we put it back into dialogue. And then we went, oh my God, it's so much better as a dialogue. And that was a problem because a lot of publishers were a bit hesitant about, you know, yeah. Plato, you know, who, who was the last dialogue guy? Was it that Plato guy or the Aristotle guy? Whoever it was. <laughs> right? um, but we found Some one and, and, and it went well. But the, but the point being, it ended up being a dialogue. And the great thing about the dialogue is you can revisit it as you're then writing. So the anger frame wasn't actually what we started with. It's no, what not. emerged through the conversation and you get that in the dialogue. Now, with that, Mark, you... I can remember, I can literally remember the moment. I mean, it's worth giving the sense that we, we had a pretty clear between the two of us, which we agreed on a thesis about how, what's happening in political economy. Right. And I can remember when you, at one point, I think we were kind of, we, we'd kind of written the first draft and you suddenly said, what about anger? And both of us just suddenly went, I mean, it's everywhere. It's kind of obvious, and yet we're totally inarticulate on the subject. Right. Like, there's no depth to our understanding of anger itself as a phenomenon. Why do human beings get angry of all reactions? Is there good anger? Is there bad anger? What does anger tell us? And then we went on this interesting journey of saying, look, we need to take three months, six months, read up loads about anger, get back together and say, what do we think? Um, and for me, that was, you know, that, that was ultimately where the, 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 the really interesting dynamic happened, because in a sense, the political economy was familiar to you and I. Right. So we're not psychologists. Um, but we were then able, I think, to, to synthesize what was a very, very diverse literature into an accessible typology. And suddenly it all came together and clicked. So, so walk us through the types. Walk us through the, the way that we ended up boxing it. Yeah. So 
I think it happened in a number of stages. As I said, so, so the, the literature on anger is very diverse. There's work in neuroscience, there's work in social psychology, self-help. There's moral philosophy is probably the oldest kind of theories of, of, of anger. And in fact, I would say most of the wor research work that's been done on anger starts with the definition that's provided by moral philosophy which is anger as a response to injustice. And this dates all the way back to Aristotle. So Aristotle viewed it as an appropriate response to an injustice. So that was our kind of starting point, was this idea that it's somehow telling you that something's wrong. But we then moved beyond this because we got two different dimensions to this. So th the first, I think, critical distinction that we made was between private and public anger. And again, I don't think you'll find this anywhere in the literature. It's implicit, but it's never been made explicit. And we suddenly realized public anger is completely different to private anger. So for example, if you had a colleague who was suddenly getting angry, you're going to take them to one side and say, listen, is everything okay? Uh, you know, something happened at home or are you facing some stress? What's going on here? So we realized at one point there's this distinction between public and private anger is very important. And they're, they're, they're almost opposites. So in other words, if you had a colleague, for example, who was suddenly getting angry at work, you're more likely to take them to one side and say, listen, is everything okay? So in our private lives, anger is indicative that something's wrong within us. We're stressed. We're struggling to cope. It's a cry for help. That's pr the pr private sphere simplifying. Now, if you took public expressions of anger, for example, an Extinction Rebellion protester, you don't go up to an Extinction Rebellion protester and take them to one side and say, is everything okay? If you say to them, why are you angry? They've all, it's almost virtuous. It is, they, they have, it's righteousness, okay? So they will, they will almost say, why aren't you angry too? Right. So in contrast, if you went up to, you know, you would not approach an Extinction Rebellion protester and say, is everything okay, right? If you ask them why they're getting angry, they're going to give you very coherent reasons. And there is almost a righteousness. And they will say to you, you should be angry too, right? So, this, so the first distinction we got to, I think that's very important, is in the private sphere, anger is, if anything, associated with shame. In the public sphere, there's almost a pride at least in moral outrage. The second key distinction we made, which I, I can remember right now was a sort of key turning point, was when we did a big data search. We used Watson Analytics and we thought, let's search hundreds of thousands of news stories and sort them by the theme of anger and see what comes up. And it was both intriguing and perplexing. <laughs> so what the second most frequent type of story that came up were angry sports fans. Now, if you say that to most people, particularly anyone who goes to sporting events, they kind of go, did you really need to do a data search to work that out? <laughs> it's like, that's blindingly obvious, which it is, but it's also fascinating and intriguing. So why do usually men pay good money often to travel to pretty miserable parts of the world or parts of their country to watch a really poor game of sports um, and get really angry? Uh, and that seems to be the, the primary that's objective. That's the modus operandi, right? That's the modus operandi. And the intriguing thing, and you and I then, whenever we went to a football match, which we do together every now and then, we just go now to study the fans. Yeah, and the intriguing we, we go, thing... Basically, we went, to the, we went to the maddest part of Watford's ground to get right in amongst the people you're that's talking right. about. The norm I, regulators, right? So talk that's about that. right. And so, so the intriguing thing there was we all expect a fan to be antagonistic towards the opposition. What's really interesting is if you study sporting fans, they will often take their anger out towards their own players for a lack of commitment and even their own fans for right. not being insufficiently loyal. And that was the key point where we suddenly realized these guys are tribal identity regulators. And, and being an economist, you know, I couldn't help but think, actually, when you want to go to war, you've got a collective action problem. Because you should always send somebody else to the front line, right? You don't want to be the first soldier to go out to, to charge over the top, right? <laughs> you want to be right at the back. So all of a sudden you think, actually, tribal aggression is a collective action problem. In the same way that ethics is, right? Morality is classically a problem in, in, in game theory because everybody's incentivized to free ride. And, and what's fascinating in that context is that anger is described in common language as a loss of temper. It's almost like a commitment to be irrational. Right. Watch out, because I'm about to do something really stupid, but it'll be, it'll be aggressive. So, so we have this typology, public and private anger, 
And then within the public sphere, we have these two types, the anger of angels, which is moral injustice, and the anger of devils, which is we need to get tribal and go to war. And that that really then suddenly our political economy thesis, which we'll come on to, falls into right. place. Exactly. And we have it's accessible. So building on to where we went next, what I've been interested in for a very long time professionally is the whole notion of uncertainty. So non-probabilistic risk and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And in our conversations, one of the things that we agreed on was that humans hate many things. Living in the United States, I can tell you I hate ranch dressing with a passion. I think it's a culinary war crime. But what we really hate <laughs> is uncertainty. The notion that we, yeah. our, if we put it technically, our first best efforts to control our destiny always lead to second best outcomes. So if you think about the way that changes in product markets, labor markets, globalization, financial crises have basically disempowered people. They're no longer able to control their destiny in a very straightforward way. My uh, wife grew up in East Germany, as you know, and we were talking about this the other day, and she said, when did it get so complex? You used to be able to just leave school, get some training, do a trade, get married, put food on the table, and things were pretty straight for about 40 years. And that is no longer the live reality of most people. And if we are, in a sense, genetically predisposed to try and rid ourselves of uncertainty, and we do this in every way through building complex monetary systems to bar mitzvahs, to Christmas parties, to football matches, et cetera, et cetera. These are all ways of, in a sense, reducing the uncertainty in our lives and giving us a sense of identity. Is it any wonder that basically after a series of large financial collapses, asymmetric puts, stagnant wages, rising inequality, that people feel that their ability to control their destiny fails, and hence these two sides of anger become pronounced. One is moral yep. outrage. I need to be heard. You're ignoring me, the left-behind narrative, etc. And the other one, tribal identity, we saw, and the one that twigged us both off, was when Trump was up in Wisconsin talking about the left-behind and I'm your voice and so on and so forth, and then just pivoted and turns around, goes right down to Arizona or, or New Mexico and starts talking about Mexicans as rapists, pure tribal identity. And what you get then is the weaponization of politics through that yep. moment. So together, what we were able to do is use Angronomics as a lens to connect the different aspects, micro and macro, of the political yep. economy story we're telling. And maybe, Mark, listen, I can, I can ask you some questions as well, is maybe say a little bit more about the kind of micro Angronomics. So we have what was very appealing to us is the two faces of public anger gave us a great way of synthesizing what's happening in political economy. Yeah. Where Trump needs to motivate 80,000. He got 80,000 votes, wins him the presidential election. That's a fraction of a percent of the U.S. population. Angry people more likely to vote. If he can trigger moral outrage in the Rust Belt, and then he can trigger tribal rage in a constituency where that matters, he can win. It's a political right. strategy. So we, And that's almost the macro explanation. Then we have the micro which, as you describe it, is about uncertainty. But, but talk me through the other point, because, again, when we do economics, there's no emotion. So when people talk about deregulating labor markets or product markets, and I, I remember doing this. My, my first part of economics was labor economics. All I thought about was, what does it do to unemployment? What does it do to inflation? I never right. actually thought, what's it going to do to people's lives? Right. People's sense of uncertainty. Now, to the non-economist, you go, what, what, what the hell are you guys up to, really? Like, you never thought about that? You never thought about that It's so one. obvious. But yes. as you know, it's not really, it's not how economists speak. And yeah. I think this is the other thing that's resonated, that the book has kind of, this is almost angrynomics, is, is, making, is making the economics real. Yeah. And I mean, if we were in econo economist mode, right, what would we talk about? We'd talk about labor markets. We'd talk about the pros and cons of structural reform. We'd talk about labor market hysteresis as a problem. We might even go as far as to say that the recessions are not therapeutic because they leave these hysteresis footprints, at which point you've left everyone behind. Like They have no idea what yeah. you're talking about. And what we decided to focus on was very much how humans deal with this. And the type yeah. of work that got me really interested in this, of course, is the Case Deaton paper that came out. It's now the book on deaths of despair. But then there yeah. was also the other, prior to that was the work on the spirit level. Basically, the epidemiology and the epidemiological costs of mass inequality. Mm -hmm. And that basically, that, together, what that shows is that these labor market pressures are not abstract. They're concretized as stress on the human system. So we started to think about, well, what other stressors are there that 
we really should be paying attention to that we're not paying attention to. And the first one, of course, was uh, automation. Now, we tell another macro story, which we can get to, the story, the, the analogy we use is capitalism as computers and system crashes, et cetera, right? Yeah, we must just come to, back to that. Yeah, but just to jump in, into sure. this bit, uh, to give people something to hold on to, one of the things we do in our dialogues, I say, hey, do you remember basically about two years after the financial crisis, every newspaper that was a serious newspaper in the world started telling everyone that we're all about to be replaced by robots? Yeah. There would be no more trucks, there would be no more cars, blah, blah, blah. Now, this, if you've seen this before, this is Silicon Valley talking their book, right? I mean, that, that's all this is. There are still truck drivers. But this actually had a real influence on the American trucking market because so many people were off, put off getting truckers' licenses that by 2012, they were short 80,000 truckers and the fleet was running at 100%. So, you know, these things have real effects. So taking that as a little lens, we start to think, well, what are the effects of automation? What exactly does that do? And one of the things it does is it increases precariety. It changes yeah. contract structure. It yeah. re massively rewards people who have the skills that basically allow you to do these things and the returns yeah. to the robots, if you want. But then it does create, if not vulnerabilities, then the perception of vulnerabilities, which yeah. feels more disempowering for people. And Can then I come in here, Mark? Yeah, Sorry, go, go on. Go for it. Well, I'm just going to give an overview. Just to say Absolutely. the other side of it, uh, we then said, well, what else is important? And we thought, well, something else that's not as important we don't talk about is aging. All mm -hmm. of the rich countries are getting old. And just to take one example that we use in the book, you know, everyone knows that central banks didn't call the crisis. Part of the problem for that is the way that they look at the, the, the economy with big representative agent models, DSGE, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that if you think that the economy is one person, that they are ageless, they are sexless, they have no desires, they have no passions, they have no worries, they suffer no stress, and you shock them with interest rates and they rationally respond, you're going to miss more than you capture. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what we did. So we said, imagine just do the following thought experiment for me. Uh, what would happen if you took that representative agent and just turned them into a 60-year-old white person? What would happen to consumption? <laughs> right? What would happen to investment? Right, because yeah. aging matters in ways we don't think about. It. So we explore, and we're happy, we can talk about it if you want. Um, you know the consequences of tech and aging as particular stressors on a micro level. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, because all I wanted to say was just as an aside, I think one of the things I learned from the dialogues with you, it gave me a different perspective on inequality. And it gave me a different perspective on why, if we can give more people a share of ownership, it, it would be highly functional. And, and, right. what, and what I mean by that is, is that in a sense, the cost of free markets and technological innovation is a high degree of uncertainty in people's lives. Right. Which they don't people like. hate it. People hate that. So there's a, we all have a tension with technology, which is technology is the basis of progress, but it's also it's technology could make me redundant, could make my skills redundant, make my life harder because I have to learn the technology. They're causing change in my environment, and mm -hmm. humans want stability in their environments. Now, and I think this is what, what leads to a very different argument for addressing wealth inequality. Because suddenly you say, if we want to have a successful, innovative, technologically driven economy, people need assets as insurance and protection. And right. so if we can give people who don't have assets, there's two motivations. One is that they'll feel an emotional attachment. I have a share in the global stock of capital. So the system isn't all rigged against me. I share in the success of the system, but also I'm able to embrace some degree of uncertainty and risk because I also have something to fall back upon. And I think that's a very novel take mm -hmm. on the merits of addressing, in particular, wealth inequality. No, I think that's exactly right. And that's almost the bridge that we get to before we actually start talking about what we would do or as I've come to tell, you know, how we move the furniture around. 
But we'll get to that in a second. Do you want to go back and do the other bit? Because just to give people an overview again. Yeah. So the first part of the book is about anger and our discovery of anger and its link to the political economy. Again, public and private weaponization as energy of tribes, norm regulation in groups and outgroups, politicization versus moral outrage, desire to be heard, et cetera, et cetera, claims for retribution, righteousness, et cetera. But before we then jump to what we just spoke about, we try and put this in the context of, if you will, the long arc of, of political economy. And I usually do this bit, but why don't you do this I'm going to let you do this bit again, because I think you, you do it really brilliantly. And you came up with the idea, and, and it's a brilliant pedagogic device, which is to think of the economy. Why if I summarize your approach and then you, you should you should yeah, go you through go the for stages because you did brain. So so you you came up with this idea of describing the economy, the capitalist system for want of a better term, is the hardware. And the different types of capitalism that we've had reflect different softwares. Um, and so you can think of the German economy differs. In, it's a free market. We, we all have free market mixed economies. We have state involvement and we have a pre predominantly the productive parts of our economy are done by the private sector. Broadly, this is a common model across the, the global developed world. And yet every time something has gone wrong or substantially wrong, the system has crashed. We haven't just rebooted, we've changed the software. So we've had a, a 1.0, a 2.0, a 3.0. Mm. And the odd thing about the financial crisis is we didn't get a 4.0. And to some extent, what you and I and many other people are trying to do now is write the code for 4.0. Yeah, But I you should exactly go through, that. take us through one, two, and three. All right. And then we can have a chat maybe about how four might look. Yeah, so basically the parable that begins this dialogue, a strange way of putting it, but true, is the parable of the three economists. And the three economists are basically uh, Karl Polanyi, and then John Maynard Keynes and Mikhail Kaletsky. So why, why those particular economists? So Polanyi basically pointed out that capitalism 1.0, which was free market globalization with no airbags, uh, the pressure release was essentially allowing mass migration as well as the movement of capital. The problem was this was that adjustment was made through domestic wages and prices on a gold standard. And while labor doesn't mind its price going up, it hates it when it goes down. And if you have a structural bias in a system that favors the accumulation of surpluses and biases towards exports, you will have net deflation. So eventually you're going to piss off labor to the point that they revolt and the system breaks. And that's basically what happens. So if you think of that as hardware one, software one, crash, right? The reset that comes up after the 1930s and the chaos and war of the 1940s, the kind of na cl relatively closed national economies, Bretton Woods system, much more modified gold standard. Gold's very much in the background. It's really about the dollar. Basically, essentially homo homologous, similar economies, occasionally swapping stuff with each other that they make themselves anyway. No globalization, particularly of finance. This is a much, much more labor-friendly regime. Indeed, it has a very strong policy target, an explicit one. It varies on how you want to get there, but the policy target is there, which is full employment. And everybody runs full employment for 30 years, and very much that's the Keynesian order. Now, there was yeah, a just very... to interject, the kind of software, the, 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 um, the operating system had been written by Keynes. And yes, it was exactly. kind of there to be taken off a shelf, and there was a body of of idea behind it. Exactly. And whether you did this through a supply side, Ren Meidner version of Sweden, or whether you did it through demand restriction and exports with the Germans, or whether you did it through mass consumption with the Brits and the Americans, the policy target was the same. Now, Kalecki comes along and says, you know, lads, there's a big problem with this. Because if you run a full employment economy for 30 years, the dumbest person in your firm at the end of those 30 years can walk out at 12 o'clock and get a higher paid job at four. You're going to just bid up the median wage. Now, you can pay for this whole happy labor-friendly regime so long as productivity outpaces real wage gains and you're able to cement stable prices and stable labor relations such that you can make this kind of a working stable bargain. But that all begins to destabilize in the 1970s, partly because you cannot push productivity frontier anymore. You've got cost-push inflation in the system. Partly this is temporary factors like the oil price shocks and one-time food, food, price, food price increases. But it's also systemic in that it has an effect on profits. And it also has an effect, if you will, in the psychology of investment. 
that basically says that management no longer has the right to management. This is the high point of labor disputes throughout the world. And this leads an economic reaction, what we call the new software, the neoliberal software, well, this, if you want. So the 1970s, in a sense, is the crash, stagflation, right? Exactly, is the crisis, exactly. That's and the then, crash. And then there's not just a software rewrite with basically away from Keynesian towards neoliberal software, there's a hardware reboot. And the crucial one being price stability becomes the goal. And what do you do is your hardware modification, independent central banks. They become the rule setters. They become their only game in town eventually, as Alarian put it in his book from a few years ago. So this seems to work for a while. It certainly restores the value of profits. It disinflates the entire economy. But it actually does it a little bit too well to the point that the labor share collapses, the capital share increases. We end up with Piketty's R over G, whether or not you buy the argument, that's what it looks like. And the bugs in the software this time are what we talk about as the underlying strong stressors in the book, the rise in inequality, the dispersal of profits, uh, the uh, way that this is backfilled is through credit, through the massive expansion of the financial sector, all of which comes down in 2008. But rather than there being a reboot, as there was in the 30s, rather than there being a hardware modern or reboot as there was in the 70s, what did we do? We just basically asked the central banks to modify their mandate to do the exact opposite of what they've been doing and manipulate prices as much as possible in order to save asset values. So if I put it in very simple terms, you had Keynes gave us capitalism 2.0, the post-war model. Friedman gave us 3.0, the neoliberal model, simplifying yeah, a lot. Very simplifying, but yes. Nobody's given us 4.0. 4.0 didn't happen. All didn't we happen. did was we recapitalized the banks, got them to hold a lot of liquidity. Nobody's, the man on the street, the woman on the street's life didn't change. We just said business as usual. Right. And central and banks have got, yeah. What happened is they got older. What happened yeah. was they were told they were all going to be replaced by robots. And in many ways that has begun. If you think about Uber, Deliveroo, all the rest of it. What does that do? It makes those already unstable labor markets and stagnant wages even more precarious. So you have a situation, I like to describe it as a class-specific put option, whereby we, start, we end up in a regime that targets asset prices rather than full employment. And we care about, and we see this today with the COVID bailouts, sure. we basically put a floor under asset prices so that people like you and I who have assets don't lose any money. And the cost of that, particularly 10 years ago, was done basically with an asymmetric put option called austerity, where those who had no assets were the ones that were supposed to pay for this. Now, if that's not going to produce a ton of anger, I don't know what is. And I want you to just remember what happened in the Euro crisis. Remember the riots in the Madrid subway. Remember the Greeks burning Nazi swastikas, right? People got really pissed, right? And they did justifiably because if you think about what's the Italian economy, it hasn't grown in 20 years. And it's been running surpluses, basically, because the European rules say they should. So it's those kind of structural features. The fact that we didn't reboot the system, that we didn't allow it to fail. We thought it was too big to fail, quite literally. And we let it stagger on. And now we need 4.0. The question is, what does 4.0 look like? That's great. So you want to say anything more about the private side of stuff? Because let's talk about, because another part of inequality that most people are familiar with the stories of wage inequality, wealth inequality, but you're also really interested in profit inequality. You actually think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, I've tended to rethink this a lot, which is that I think that the one bit that's been ignored because it's less obvious, it's more opaque, unless it's your job to look at individual companies and sectors, is the effects of deregulation, globalization, technological change and uncertainty on the corporate sector. So I mm -hmm. think there's been a huge increase in a sense in the inequality within capital. Um, you know, and a business like Amazon is a fascinating illustration of this, which is, and this is where I find a lot of the analyses of stock markets very superficial about, you know, are they short-termist or has there been a lot of investment spending? There's been ferocious investment spending by certain companies, largely driven by technological change and blue sky thinking and aggressive corporate behavior rather than traditional animal spirits. I don't think animal spirits has been the story around capital expenditure, not optimism or pessimism. But mm -hmm. Amazon has kind of picked off sectors and just said, with a virtually zero cost of capital, we're gonna just attack that sector. And that has created this huge sense of uncertainty uh, within capital inequality. And I think that has fed through to deregulated labor markets by creating a high degree of uncertainty in people's everyday lives. Yeah. The, the positive of it, I think, is that we do live in a world of price stability. And I guess if we go on to the policies, to you and I, that is the, the, 
to me, that's the big opportunity. It's kind of the irony is that the, the deregulation that was instigated by people like Friedman has actually permitted Keynesian countercyclical policy to emerge. Right. Because every time we go in a recession, it's deflation risk. And deflation means you can print money. That is why we, got the, we have the policy response that we have and the mm -hmm. bond market never collapses. Because yes. the bond market goes, there's no inflation, there's deflation. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. I'll just mention someone's work here, which I may or may not have sent you, and I should do. There's a political economist called Mark Herman Schwartz, who's based out of Virginia, who's been writing some really interesting stuff in this. And he has a term for this, which he calls, and I think this is really insightful, the IPR slash franchise economy. So essentially, you have a core of firms that are 20% of the stock market and 30% of the profits, the ones that we know, the digital giants, etc. He says, but there's also some other firms that behave in the same way. So he gave us a very exa ex interesting example of this is Hilton Hotels. So what happens with Hilton is Hilton's a brand. Hilton hardly owns anything. But what Hilton does is it licenses the brands out to various real estate investment trusts who own buildings, whatever, and they get to put the badge on it. They then subcontract out everything in the hotel to other people. So everybody's wandering around with the Hilton badge, right? But everything's the franchise. Now, if you start at the top, Hilton's making a lot of money. The people who then own the buildings are making a fair bit of money because they're somewhat close to the core. But everyone else who's on the franchise in the tail is making no money whatsoever. And that mm -hmm. goes a long way to explain not just the dispersal of profits, but basically why they get this concentration increasingly of low-wage jobs. Yeah. in the service sector, which has nothing to do with bombals, disease, cost disease, or any of that sort of stuff, and strikes me as a really, really insightful way of looking at it, which is very much in line with what we're arguing. So how do we fix all this shit? Right. Well, broadly, so, so to summarize, you and I came to the conclusion that, that we, need to, we need to respond to the, to the moral outrage. And so what's happening in GLOBE, the rise of populism you can think of as a political strategy by the political class. And Orban is the clearest expression of this in Hungary, where he says, I'm not a liberal in the traditional sense. I don't believe in uh, free market liberalism anymore as, as a political strategy because I won't get elected. I have right. to be a populist, right? I put Hungary first. I become conservative on social values. I start fighting with immigrants. I go anti-EU because it will win me elections. He's totally clear about it. He's, he's yeah. not interested in whether or not it's good or bad. He just wants to win elections. So how do you counteract that? And what we've argued really is that there's the, the center should not be an end in itself. Like reasonableness is not an end in itself if it doesn't change anyone's life. And so I think there's been a huge failure of ideas, which is nobody has actually said three things really, really concern people legitimately, globally. A sustainable economy that we don't destroy our environment, right? That's a truism. Wealth inequality, it's a truism that we would have better societies if there was less unequal distribution of wealth. And recessions are bad, right? They cause huge human suffering. The problem is that the, the neoliberal, the, 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 the centrist political elite haven't addressed any of those. That's the fact of life. Nobody is able to go out and say, I'm going to vote for somebody who's genuinely going to affect those three issues. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge we set ourselves. We set ourselves a challenge of policies that are simple to understand, will address those issues, and don't fall into left or right. Right, they're not obviously placeable on the, on the political spectrum. The book seems to be getting well received, not to drop many things, but it's been reviewed in all the Times except the New York Times, the London Times, the Sunday Times, the Financial Times, positive reviews, the whole lot. What the do you Irish think? Times, the, the Irish Times, the Irish Times, most important of all. Thank you very much. What do you think is getting people? Do you think it's the focus on anger and angrynomics, or do you think it's the economics of anger? What do you think's grabbing people when they're reviewing this and, and, and giving it good reviews? I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think what I'm finding very rewarding is really resonating is a lot of people are saying, I'm reading this book and I'm switching on the TV or I'm looking at social media or I'm reading the newspaper and it's resonating. It's giving me a vocabulary to make sense of things. Um, and you and I chatted about this an awful lot. The other thing that's unusual about the book is it's a series of parables. Each chapter begins with a parable, which is a, 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 an experience that you and I have had. There's a little bit of poetic license, which tries to explain in, in, in a single page what the essence of the argument at each stage is. And it's also a dialogue between the two of us. 
Um, and there are parts where we disagree or we have disagreements of, or, or, or divergence on nuance and areas where we agree, and it allows us to probe each other's perspective. So I think this, this really fact that it resonates, it, it helps people make sense of what's happening at the moment. But also I think there's a stylistic component where it is accessible, it's argumentative. And that's what I think has really resonated. And then the final piece, which, which I'm really pleased about is People really appreciate the fact that we've got three or four very simple policies that they think, or as you describe it, movements in the furniture, which could really make a difference. And interestingly, I spoke to an, an academic in Dublin this morning who was doing a podcast, and he said, what I really like about this is it's strangely optimistic. And that's missing. There's a load of political economy out there that's all doom and gloom. This is actually, I ended up quite optimistic having read the book. So it was raining where Eric was, so Eric has now had to go inside. Um, just to catch up to where we were, we're about to outline what we call moving the furniture around. So we have four big ideas at the back end of the book on how we sort out some of these issues. Uh, citizens' wealth funds, digital dividends, dual interest rates, helicopter money, and uh, take it away, Eric. Great. I mean, maybe I'll start first with with the idea of a wealth fund. So. We've given a set of arguments as to why we think we would all be better off if we could do something about wealth inequality. And we want to do the, the task we set for our policies was nonpartisan would have us would it would have an effect, right? They're going to work and they're pretty simple. And I think the only objection, there's only two objections to this proposal we, we make on wealth inequality. You either you don't believe in arithmetic, fair enough. Uh, or you think a meteor is going to hit the earth, right? right? In which case, frankly, it doesn't matter what we do. Okay, so what's the solution? Well, across the developed world today, and, and this audience will understand this, most developed economy governments can borrow for 20 years at virtually zero interest rates. If I issue a zero coupon bond for 20 years at zero rates, that means I don't pay any interest for 20 years, and all I do is in 20 years' time, I repay what I currently borrow. Okay? Now, here's the deal. You go out and you issue 20-year bonds. You don't care if interest rates go up in the future because that interest rate is fixed for 20 years. And you put it out to tender. So you raise whatever you want, 10, 15% of GDP, and you put it out to tender. And you say to some global asset managers, you maybe you appoint three or four of them. I want you to generate me somewhere between a 4 and an 8% return. And as this audience will know, is ultimately that's a statistical exercise. So I put volatility on one axis and I put the return on the other. It's not as quite as simple as that, but broadly speaking, and if Harvard Endowment can do it, if the Wellcome Trust in the UK can do it, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, very, very interesting case in point, has generated a 6% return. Most of its assets today are returns. They are not the original endowment from oil. And all we're saying is, let's just do that, okay? So you don't know if you're gonna generate a 2% return over 15 or 20 years or a 10% return, but it's going to be in that order of magnitude if you believe that global capital will continue to be profitable and generate a return, which is a reasonable assumption. You could do that in six months, every nation in the developed world, do it instantaneously. And you could, within six months, distribute ownership in that fund to those parts of your population who don't have any assets today. Now, what would that immediately do? That would immediately give everybody a stake and it would immediately give everybody some assets to own, right? So in which case, you would it would be like a national inheritance trust. You inherit a, a national benefit, which you would then be able to draw down, assuming it generates return over 15 or 20 years, um, to pay for health, education, savings, uh, retirement. So that's the idea. And, and the, the argument behind it is, is pure arithmetic, where right? it's just compound interest. And it's very quickly able to exploit the current opportunity in the state's balance sheet, which is effectively zero interest rate. One thing I'd add on to that was our original idea on this one, and it's very much apropos the COVID moment, is if we have kind of morphed into this world when we went from targeting inflation, which became pointless because there was none, to one where central banks is the only game in town target asset prices. Why are we just constantly rewarding the same people that have all the assets to start with? Now, the usual response is tax the hell out of them, right? But our response is actually, I think, a lot better, which is, no, why don't we just do this? Whenever there's a crisis, whether it's a pandemic or a financial crisis, which seems to happen with increasing frequency and magnitude, government's cost of capital is inverse to that of the private sector. 
everybody dumps their equities. And just now what happens is the central bank comes in and puts a floor under it, and then people creep back into the market and push it back up. Why don't we just buy all those equities with that 15 to 20%, stick it in a passive fund, not give it back, and for once, the public that's actually insuring the markets actually gets the upside of the markets. That seems to us to be a, both a fair and very pro-capital way of doing it that doesn't rely upon taxation. Absolutely. And, and you and I have spoken about this a lot, and I think it's something that people don't appreciate outside of parts of the financial sector and the asset management community which is the consequences of the fact that as an asset manager, as a fund manager, I buy duration or long-dated government bonds as an insurance policy. Well, that has profound, as a cyclical insurance policy, that has profound consequences. That effectively means that the state could operate systematically in an opposite way, in a sense, to the private sector. So when the return on assets is very high by buying private sector assets, so equities, for example, coincides with phases when the state's cost of capital is incredibly low. That actually is a kind of free lunch to the government. It is a consequence, I should say, of zero inflation. But it is a feature of the current regime, and it's absolutely exploitable. I mean, we know we have eco most conventional economists tearing their hair out going, given how low the state's cost of capital is, why aren't we doing more investment spending? Investment spending in the developed world is not something that you can just switch on easily. But you can absolutely set up a sovereign wealth fund within six months. Literally, you could issue the debt in two weeks to fund it. You could set up good corporate governance. You could set up an independent. It would, it need, the governance needs to be tight, but we have lots of examples like the Norwegians about how to do this. And then you just let, let the private sector generate you a compound return. And to those who say, well, I worry about debt financing it, I mean, again, you know, not to generate a zero return more than a zero return over 15 or 20 years would be pretty exceptional. Um, all you need to do is generate a positive return. And you don't need to do anything with the capital until you've substantially repaid the debt. Yeah. But that would be wealth creation. And that is a, you know, you can appeal to the right of the political spectrum by saying, that's shareholder capitalism. Yeah. And you can appeal to the left by saying, we're tackling wealth inequality. Let's just do it. Exactly. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Next one interest rates have hit the zero lower bound. We can't do anything. Help. Yeah, I mean, this is something that frustrates me an awful lot, and I'm frustrated with my fellow economists. Fortunately, there's one economist in the world, other than a few of us, who realizes this, and he happens to be the chief economist of the European Central Bank, which is there is no lower bound. And I don't mean negative interest rates. I mean mm. dual interest rates. Now, most of your audience have probably not heard of this, which is a reflection on the, the media and the economics profession. Um, this is a really, really simple idea. So what do you do when you get to the lower band? We all know you don't want to just keep on going negative because banks run into trouble, savers lose income, it's zero sum, and it causes huge problems with financial intermediation, and you could result in crazy asset price behavior. Okay, so we don't want to just keep on going with negative interest rates. What if we do this? What if we leave deposit rates are unchanged, or we actually raise deposit rates, and we continue to cut the interest rate on loans? That's win-win. You get around that it's not net zero. That means everyone who has a deposit has a higher income, and everybody who has a, who has a loan saves interest income, right? Has higher income after interest payments, right? Mm -hmm. That is a, an unambiguous stimulus to the entire private sector. It is guaranteed to work. Not only is it guaranteed to work, there is no lower bound. Now, how does this happen in practice? This audience will be familiar with these points, but effectively the interest rate on deposits is what's called the, the interest rates on reserves, the IOR, which is now how the Fed runs monetary policy and so does the Bank of England, everybody, the Bank of Japan, the Swiss, the ECB, which is banks, the, the money that's created by QE is effectively held as ele in electronic form with the central bank by the commercial banks. And that affects money market rates. And this is called the interest rate on reserves. And that's effectively sets the deposit rate through the system. In addition to that, however, a number of central banks have set up targeted lending schemes. So what are these? Well, if you, what's one of the most fascinating developments of this crisis 
is the European Central Bank did not cut official interest rates. Mm. Right? Deposit rates in Europe are unchanged, but they reduced the interest rate on their targeted lending below the interest rate on reserves. So they now have two interest rates. This is dual interest rates. So here's the question. So they're called Teltras. What are Teltras? All they are is loans that the European Central Bank makes to the banks contingent on the banks doing certain things. And at the moment, that, that interest rate is actually below. Banks are incentivized. They can just take those loans. The money goes on deposit with the central bank. They may carry. It's, it's, it's contingent on them making net new loans. My view is the following. It's really simple. Do a, do a targeted loan for five years. So you say, I'm going to give you five-year money. You say this to banks, five-year money at minus 3% interest rates. However, you have to reprice your loan book, right? So you have to pass on two-thirds of that margin improvement. Now, that is limitless in its power, right? So that means you could get to a situation in Europe where you could have all mortgages on zero or all mortgages at negative interest rates simply by using the Teltro program. So you could make targeted funding available to the banks at negative interest rates without touching deposit rates, contingent on them repricing their loan books. As soon as you do that, it's rocket fuel. And the, the, and, and the European Central Bank has just done that. The problem has been that there's no public understanding of it. It's completely opaque. Most economists don't even realize what they're doing, and people haven't thought through the consequences. You could hypercharge this if instead of saying just reprice your loan book, you said, oh, and I'll make a minus 5% loan available to you if you fund sustainable energy investment. Right? Because we've seen, if you just, just think of what's happened with alternative energy, if you give subsidies and incentives, the private you let loose the private sector, okay, given the technology that's available to us, why don't we do that with monetary policy and energy investment? So if you wanted to, to make, instead of, as you describe it beautifully, the madness of QE, which is you're putting a hose in your letterbox trying to fill up a teacup or a or a pot of tea. It's madness, right? Instead of doing that, let's get capital investment using dual interest rates. So you say, I'm going to give you five-year loans, whatever the number is, at minus 4% or minus 5%, but only if you do sustainable yeah. investment spending. It'd be rocket fuel, literally. So there's rocket fuel the way we're waiting to be burned. We've got a citizen's wealth fund to fund. One of the ones that uh, we talk about in the book, which has already happened, so let's not belabor it, helicopter money. Back yep. in 2014, we wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs about why QE is a huge, expensive waste of time. We should just do direct funding of households. Yep. COVID has actually shown that you can do this and the world doesn't end. So we yep. already went on that one. Time is running short. Let's move sure. on to the last one. I'm going to take the lead on this one. You take it. Go for it. Data dividends. So here's the issue. The profits dispersal between sort of the insider core firms with have uh, very low mar net marginal cost of almost zero, digital giants, 20% the US indexes, etc. They don't pay any taxes. And people are quite rightly outraged about that. Now, it's not just those companies. Corporates used to pay tax. A uh, little fact, in 2010, I personally paid more tax than General Electric. Now, I don't care which university you live in, that is morally and financially absurd, right? So quite rightly, people like around Elizabeth Warren, et cetera, have been, let's tax these things, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we tried that. The European Union basically said to Ireland, pony up 13 billion because you owe it to us because you've been doing a deal with Ireland. And that's still hung up in the courts. So it's very hard to do that frontal assault. Moreover, a couple of weeks ago, the Americans walked out of the OECD talks on taxing multinationals, particularly digital multinationals, because they're all Americans. So they're like, no, we're not going to do this. And if you tax them, we're going to put tariffs on you. Mm. So I think this makes this proposal even more interesting. So we basically said, what's the rocket fuel, to use that analogy, for these uh, big firms? And it's the data that we give them for free. And if you compare this to mobile phones, whenever we have a mobile phone revolution, 4G, 5G, whatever, we have to change the hardware. But we also pay for it by auctioning off part of the spectrum. We make them pay for the things they use. Now, with Facebook and Amazon, all the rest of it, we get huge consumer benefits from this, absolutely. And that's the argument as to why it's free and it's low barriers to entry. But ultimately, that means that you're giving up the thing that is their profit engine for free. So we are very fond of the idea of either national or subnational data trusts. 
people can opt in or opt out. You sell them the rights to access this data, and that way you're in control, and you're also getting a dividend, which can then come back into your sovereign wealth fund and help fund those other investments. And it brings a degree of equity and fairness to the transaction with these giants without it actually becoming an issue of taxation. So I think if you add all of this together, you get efficient with helicopters you rather than using QE. You shift from supporting asset prices per se to actually building assets, both public and private. You do this through the Sovereign Wealth Fund. You fund that in part with a digital dividend, which could be extremely lucrative in a time when governments need more revenue. And there's also an issue of equity involved in that. And then finally, you can control your future investment path into the sectors we need, underwriting the private sector's risk by using dual interest rates, which is why I call this the furniture. And the analogy, which we've alluded to, and perhaps we can close on this, is part of the problem just now, you said, is a lack of ideas. I also think it's a lack of courage. We have mm -hmm. political classes that are yeah. awful. Say what you want about Roosevelt, say what you want about Churchill, particularly in this moment. They knew what they were doing and they followed through. Say what you want about Reagan and Thatcher, exactly the same thing. Is there a single politician in this generation that even comes close? People talk about Merkel. Merkel's chief trait is to not make decisions mm -hmm. and hope for the best. And the ones that mm -hmm. she does make tend to blow up in her face. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a problem with the quality of political capital that we have as well as the ideas. They're just not risk takers. We talk about this as the furniture because moving the furniture around in your house isn't so much of a risk. But what it does is it changes the dynamics in the room. And if we have an angry politics that's generated by an angry nomics, then we need to move the furniture around in such a way that people can have different conversations, that the social dynamics in the room are different. And that's why we don't think of these as policies. Oh, I've got a policy for that. We think of them as furniture. If you put these things in your economy, it will change the way not just it works, it changes our ownership stakes. It changes the way that we recognize the economy. It changes our claims to citizenship and responsibility and obligation. And it does a lot more in a much more efficient way. So that's why we did what we did, didn't we? That's it. We've run out of time. Eric, uh, as ever, it's been a pleasure. I should write a Likewise. book with you one day. Oh, oh we just did that. Uh, I hope that everyone watching this has enjoyed it and uh, we'll go get the book and give it to their uncle and have a fight about it over Thanksgiving or whatever you do. That'd be awesome. Excellent. Until soon. Thanks, Mark. Bye. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.